We will primarily be in Luke chapter 2 today, if that's if you could turn there. But you can keep a finger back in Matthew chapter 1 as well, because we're going to handle one verse from Matthew 1. We're in the final week of Advent, and we've been in a series together that I've entitled Reflections of the Father. I've been telling you that that meaning is twofold. We're looking at scriptures where the earthly adoptive father um, of Jesus, Joseph, is present. But secondly, since I don't believe we should open up the Bible for any other reason than primarily reflecting on our Lord and Savior, we're seeing how Jesus reflects God, our Heavenly Father. We spent uh, the first two weeks slowly going over the end of Matthew 1, and uh, I held off on verse 25 of Matthew 1 the last time we were together. So that's why I'm tacking it on the end of these verses today, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, this was my intended sermon to preach last week, but since we come to the birth of Jesus today, I guess the Lord got me sick, so I wouldn't preach on it until right before we celebrate Christmas. At least that's my own weird twisted. No, I don't believe that at all, actually. But I invite you to stand with me uh, and turn to Luke 2 or read up here. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible, again, have a finger ready in Matthew 1, and we'll read that 25th verse. We read, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Back in Matthew 1.25 says, But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, sometimes uh, scriptures like these where we probably read through several times every winter can grow very familiar to us. But at the same time, we as Christians hold convictions that your spirit inspired the writing of these words, that your spirit is present to teach us, and we trust and pray that you don't waste ink, and that every word you say is worth meditating over. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and say what it is that you desire, that your word would continue to do a work in our hearts to bring about redemption in our lives, repentance in our lives, a greater obedience and holiness. We trust and believe that you alone are the one who can do this in our hearts. Pray that you would move me out of the way. We ask this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you ever have those big events in life, maybe a really heated argument, maybe a shared catastrophe, a disaster, maybe a hard event, maybe a good event, 
And then there is this weird resettling you have to do afterwards. And you barely get a chance to breathe, but then life keeps coming. Most recently, I think about having Landon. Life keeps coming when we came back from the hospital. Christy and I have to reprogram ourselves to a new normal. That's why sometimes you'll find me more often than not writing and studying over at my house more than the office because I'm trying to help with kids as well. (laughs) Many of us shared together as a community the 2015 fires. Life was not at all different after that, was it? Actually, it was. Were you worried that maybe the summer wasn't quite over? Or are you like me and Christy, and every time you hear thunder, something in your body breaks? Uh, A few of you in particular had to have a house rebuilt. Life was different. Recently, had a close friend of mine who about over a year ago, he revealed to his wife that he had been having an affair. And thank the Lord, he and his wife reconciled. Things appear to be doing good. But I remember that slow and painful and that new, different process there for a while. How do we even begin to be normal again? Usually, life throws something at you to help you get back into normalcy again. I don't know if I could ever fully fathom the implications and the wonder about what kind of new normalcy it would be to have the Son of God, to raise. And kind of mending over that tension of divorce. Was there ever any second guessing or questioning from Mary? Does Joseph truly believe the angel? (laughs) Was there ever any second guessing or questioning from Joseph? Am I doing everything right, God? Is Mary who she says she is? Am I even fit to care for Mary, let alone God when He comes out in the flesh? Who will he look like? Am I ready for the kind of life that I've accepted with the scorn and rebuke of others who surely would not buy the story that Mary conceived supernaturally? And as these thoughts and the the resettling is, is happening, I'm assuming a few months pass. And Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem. We remember Mary went to go see Elizabeth and She comes back about four months pregnant, and so there's this window from four to maybe eight to nine months before they have to go to Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth. Life throws this at them, though. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now we have to do a little nitpicking, so you're going to have to bear with me. There is all this debate about what exact census is happening. Because the only documented census, and I should say by documented, I mean by the Jewish historian Josephus, happens in 6 AD by Quirinius. Which in fact, Luke records the Pharisee Gamaliel making reference to that census in Acts Chapter 5, verse 37. But, as it might look to you, this 6 AD census is a bit too late to match with the birth of Jesus. And Quirinius was not governor when Jesus was born. Most people believe he was actually born between 3 to 5 BC instead of that BC AD uh, year. 
But we do know B.C. and A.D. means before Christ and the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. So there are a few ways to figure out what Luke is saying, because first of all, I just want to say this. Even by secular and non-biblical standards, Luke is a first-rate historian. He is not sloppy with his work, and his detail and thoroughness is on par with other historians of the era. All that to say, it is very unlikely that Luke made a glaring date mistake, not to mention the fact that I believe that the Bible is without error. So the original Greek gives us a few options for other likely possibilities of what Luke is talking about. And I, first of all, I also want to say, I bring all this up not to bore you, (laughs) but to say if somebody asks you a question about it or tries to get you in a little pickle, oh, the Bible's full of errors, here's one, now you have some answers. First of all, all the world means the Roman world. We get this, that whoever demanding the census is not sending notifications to folks about a census to the Native Americans and to the Aborigines in Australia and to the Hindus in India. Rather, all the world was a common idiom referring to just the Roman world, just like we might say country specifically to refer to nations, or we might use it less than properly than whenever we say, oh, Kevin is from the country as opposed to the city. But our first possibility to make this scripture make sense to us is that some commentators make room to say that all the world might refer to just the holy nation because it's used that way in the Old Testament. The Jewish people or the Jewish conquered lands. And so this would explain why it was less documented and why it wasn't a huge census. We don't know that's a possibility. Secondly, that word first in Luke 2.2 is a Greek word that also means before. Whenever you say first, you also mean before all things. And so it could be that Luke meant this as in this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria, as in Luke is saying before the big registration, the big census that everyone knows about, right, these events were taking place. Does that make sense as a possibility? Lastly, the word governor is much how we might use the word leader or sometimes even president. It can be a catch-all term for anyone in power. So it could be that Quirinius is just presiding over whatever registration is taking place under the governorship who is the governor at the time. Does that make sense? So it could be that Quirinius is probably an at-large political figure at the time. So Luke could be saying in whatever position he was in, he was overseeing the registration that he's talking about. So a few options there. Again, I don't bring that up to bore you, but now you know your Bible is trustworthy still. But a census took place, some things were required. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So it's not like the government could just have people go online (laughs) and fill some surveys out. Like, I live in Kamii, my father hails from Vidalia, Georgia, their family comes from Great Britain, and my mom hails from Kamii originally, and their family has roots in Germany. But rather, it's easier if we don't confuse Joseph of Nazareth with any other Josephs that may live in Nazareth. So let's just bring Joseph, who is a descendant of King David, to the ancestral home of Bethlehem, where David grew up, and let's let Joseph be in his own ancestral hometown, talking with our officials, state his dependents, his lodgings, his belongings, his businesses, and so forth. 
which is what Joseph did. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So in this day, this is a 90-mile journey, significant elevation change. It's about a three-day trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So this is the event. This is the curveball, maybe the, the welcome external thing to shake things up a bit for Joseph and Mary. They made it over the hump of, okay, she is pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. We have a new normal. We're still getting married, but we're getting married and having a kid. And by the way, the kid's going to be God. And how do we have to do life? How do we operate? How do we live and show our faces in Nazareth having to deal with people's negative thoughts about the decisions we're making? And the fact that Mary couldn't even defend herself if she wanted to with a story revealed to us by angels. (laughs) It's highly unlikely on the ears of others to sound true. And while all these implications and worries and frustrations are playing out, the government makes this decree. Now, this is where I'm going to hang my hat on this sermon. And it's why I love deep study, because I never considered this. First, let's read verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Censuses were likely, if not certainly, paternal things. Mary was betrothed. Now, we talked about this. They're basically married. What this meant is that Joseph could have, if he wanted to, gone alone to Bethlehem and state that he was married. Mary did not have to go. In fact, did a three-day, 90-mile hike sound good on the feet? For a pregnant woman or sitting on a donkey. We don't even know if there was a donkey. There's no verse in Luke that says, and they got their donkey. About eight months pregnant, maybe hitting nine. You know, I I can't channel any inner Joseph. (laughs) But just from the quiet, compliant, righteous and compassionate expressions of him in the Bible, here's how I imagine the conversation went down. It'll be quick, Mary. I'll run there, state my belongings and make it back in time for the baby. But I just imagine Mary antsy and wanting to be with her husband. You know, I imagine these two loved each other. And I imagine Mary saying, Joseph, you're the only one who had the dream also. You trust me. You know who this son is going to be. And I want to be with you where you go. That's what I imagine. I mean, the Bible is silent on what does Joseph's family think? What does Mary's parents think? We know what Mary's cousin thinks, but we have to imagine that this good news wrapped up in a hard life, as I called it a few weeks ago, this revelation that Jesus is coming through Mary's womb, conceived by the Holy Spirit, though it appears wrong to everyone else, it's likely brought Joseph and Mary closer together. Shared traumatic experiences do that, right? I've heard over and over that Woodland never felt tighter except for after the fire. That's just what I think from what I read about Joseph, wanting to divorce her quietly, the compassion he's already shown when he thought Mary could be a harlot. I just don't think Joseph would be the kind of guy who might say, I don't care if you're eight months pregnant. I want to witness this birth, so you're coming on me. Get on that donkey. I don't see him saying that. 
Get along, Mary. <laughs> I just imagine it was Mary who was pushing Joseph to say, I want to come. I'm your wife. I almost lost you and thought it would be a hard walk alone. And though it will be a hard on my body, I want to come with you. That's just how I speculate. If it wasn't for this Roman registration, and if my theory is correct, if it wasn't for Mary's volunteering herself to go on this trip, Scripture wouldn't have been fulfilled. See, that's the thing, that that God's true prophets tell the things that come, but do we know how high the odds were for Joseph and Mary to not fulfill it? See, first we read, and when while they were there, that is Bethlehem, David's home, the time came for her to give birth. Hopefully we know the story of the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2. They show up at Jerusalem and they said, hey, we've seen this star. We know it points to the long-awaited king of the Jews. Can you tell us anything? And a bunch of priests get together and then they tell the wise men, well, Micah 5.2, well, they didn't say 5.2, but Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, or other translations would say from eternity. And the scribes reveal that they're just so full of knowledge about the Scriptures, just not passion, because they go back to their homes. Like, oh, this might be taking place. Well, anyways, I have a football game to catch up on. Meanwhile, they weren't watching football then, I'm sorry. But, man, I'm leading you astray today. Meanwhile, the three pagan wise men who just traveled already a long journey waste no more time and go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem another five miles. Jesus fulfills Micah. And the odds were stacked that he wouldn't. Joseph lived three days away. Both Joseph and Mary were relatively poor, not the cloth of kings. Joseph and Mary were close to divorcing. But an angel... A census, and if my theory is correct, an anxious wife who just wanted to be with Joseph, eight to nine months pregnant, voluntarily comes with Joseph, and they are in Bethlehem having this baby fulfilling Scripture. And what this shows us is that often the daily struggles and the daily grind that you and I go through has bigger reasons for God. See, before it was aches and pains in the feet for Joseph and Mary, before it was stress in a three-day journey, before there was divorce being talked about and before the Romans dictating to their citizens to move about the country, it was ink on paper and it was prophesied in the mind of God. Proverbs 69 tells us the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20:24 20, says a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Paul tells us that God made from every man, excuse me, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The point is, is well put by Paul later on in that message as he's standing on Mars Hill in Acts 17, that the reality is that God is actually not far from each one of us. This should be promising, in fact, comforting for those of us who have life throwing us curveballs. If you're wondering, does this season I'm in even have meaning? (laughs) Does this 
trial I'm facing? Does this suffering that I'm under, does this relationship that's bothering me, or does this prodigal that I'm praying for, does any of this, does all of this even matter to God? He's closer than you think. He's closer than you think. For Joseph and Mary, it was a long, perilous journey, an overbearing government, some heavy, physical, trying paperwork they had to fill out. But for God, it was fulfilling prophecy and bringing the Savior. What's He doing in your life and what's He doing in your pain? It might amaze you. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Speaking of pain, she gave birth. <laughs> See, there's, there's nothing more reflective of the humanity of Christ than this right here. <laughs> Mothers, you know what this is like. Fathers, if you were present, you know what this is like. If you've been present for a birth, you know what this is like. Go back in your mind to the most recent, clearest memory of a birth and imagine Jesus Christ came to us like that. God came to us, and there were no hospitals, nurses, doctors, no advisors running to and fro. There, you know, it wasn't a clean clinic. Sharon would be writing, you know, bills for them to fill out. She used to work for OSHA. <laughs> he wasn't checked by the pediatricians on arrival, just wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a feeding trough. Paul tells us that Christ Jesus was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And Paul would go on to talk about his humbling to the point of obeying his call to die for our sins. But from birth, God was humble among us. You know, at the outset of this series, I said that the Christmas story really illustrates on steroids three themes to me. Marriage, transcendence of God, and then the familiarity or the personal relatable intimacy of God. Because this is amazing here. God, here is God, whom Scripture calls our groom, whom through supernatural and transcendent means came conceived through the Holy Spirit and Mary but then now Luke is writing about things that are normal and understandable for us. Mary gave birth. It happens every day, people giving birth. And as for Mary, to her firstborn son. And there are some faith traditions within Christianity that holds to Mary being perpetually virgin. While I don't intend to give you a long, drawn-out, here's-the-both-sides theological argument segment in this sermon, you're welcome for that. <laughs> what I will say is merely echo some of my commentators and say that the most easiest and the plainest way to take the Bible here is that Mary had more kids. <laughs> Jesus was her firstborn, which in Jewish culture meant he was the most preeminent heir. heir. <laughs> Man. But other passages... Talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters. The last verse we look at today in Matthew will seem to suggest that also Mary was not perpetually a virgin. But Luke is writing in this relatable fashion. Now, like I joked a few weeks ago, none of, none of us could say with Joseph, you know, 
I've had that dream about taking my wife who's giving birth to God. I've been there. We can't say that. But we have been here. Mary's giving birth to a firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. One commentator would remind us here, we need to look at these words, because there was no place for them in the inn. In other words, it's not that Joseph and Mary's poverty that has put Joseph and Mary in the place where they're having Jesus, right? Joseph made enough money, he brought enough money, and had every intention, no doubt, to make sure his pregnant wife about to give birth to God would have the convenience of a room. But let us not forget the census and the registration that's taking place. Many descendants of David are in Bethlehem, which was also a relatively small town, probably not as small as Nazareth, but still a small town, not built or fit to board all the people coming for the census. But there is this also ironic, if not providential, foreshadow to Jesus' birth. You know, John tells us in his opening chapter about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And we know in Matthew that in the first years after the birth of Christ, Herod, the king, wants Jesus dead. (laughs) We'll look at that passage after Christmas. So in the birth of Jesus, the parents of Jesus, and therefore Jesus, are already rejected. There was no room, simply a logistic matter, but also a foreshadow of the spiritual truth that not many would receive Jesus, not fully grasping who it is that they're rejecting. Yet, Joseph and Mary have said yes to Jesus. They've accepted the task that God has entrusted to them. They've already made great sacrifices for Jesus. They're willing to suffer the misunderstood reproach that they'll receive Mary thought being loose and Joseph thought being a fool. They're already laying Jesus in the manger. We go back to Matthew chapter 1 to finish our study today. And we read in Matthew 1.25, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. When the angel first showed up to Mary uh, to tell her that she was pregnant with Jesus, Mary responded in Luke 1.34, and here in a more literal translation than the ESV, he says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The ESV dynamically translates Mary's response of, How will this be, since I am a virgin? <laughs> because knowing a man is an expression of sexual intimacy. And actually, I would be willing to bet that if all of you ever read was just the literal translation, you'd probably pick up from the context what she means without the ESV telling you she means virgin. Well, we go back to Matthew 125, and it seems rather plain. In fact, other Bible translations would go so far as to say plainly, just not literally, what Matthew means by the fact that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The whole latter part of Matthew chapter 1, I would argue, seems to have among its purposes a focus on proving that within the marriage of Joseph and Mary, Jesus did come through the womb of a virgin. But then Matthew states kind of secondarily that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. 
So again, Matthew's primary point is to inform us that, yes, Mary was a virgin. As the prophecy in Isaiah spoke of to have Jesus, we know this because Joseph and Mary did not even know each other in the intimate sense. But then again, we're told until she had given birth to a son. So this is 100% verifying that Jesus' conception in a virgin But then secondarily, we're informed that Joseph and Mary indeed consummated their marriage. He knew her so that when Matthew talks later about Jesus' brothers, we could easily infer where those brothers came from. (laughs) Jesus came to earth and he came to us in the familiarity of life. He came to parents with life being thrown at them. He came under the cloud of stress and tension that Joseph and Mary Faced with this miraculous conception, he came under the stress and effort it took Joseph and Mary to trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and he came under the stress and not at all planned, as Joseph and Mary would have liked, to be born with animals nearby instead of a room, because Jesus came to to know us intimately. He came to know life and to know it very familiar. The author of Hebrews tells us that in Jesus we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Every respect in all ways, the whole, the totality of life, tempted as we are, Jesus has lived our life. That's, our, that's the point. He has been in want. He's been in need. He has suffered the pain of betrayal and broken relationships. He has feared for his life. He has worried for his loved ones. And he has shed tears over death. But then Matthew ends his first chapter, or at least the editors who gave us chapters for the book of Matthew, ends it this way, with the name of Jesus. Which is loaded with great hope. Loaded with great love. Loaded with life and love. Jesus, literally, Yahweh saves, God saves. You know what's even more? Do you know when Jewish babies were named? Eight days later. You know what also happens eight days later? Circumcision. So when Jesus was named, he also shed blood. That's what Jesus came to earth for, to shed blood for us. And why did he do that? Well, Jesus himself tells us, and you know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world and he loves so much that he gives his son's life to give us life. The ideas of life and love really thread the needle for me on this whole passage. If we just zoom out, how many of you would, be, would have been willing or able to do what Joseph and Mary have committed to? How many of you, in a very, very small measure, you identify? (laughs) It's like this. It just seems like it's big event after curveball, after curveball. But then it's just the beginning because Jesus is still a baby. (laughs) This is just the beginning for Jesus and his life, this kind of birth under all this tension. And again, not too long before Herod's trying to hunt him down. And I, and I understand this, that the authors of Matthew and Luke are just reporting the facts. They aren't always out to give us updates and records. And now Joseph and Mary were feeling this way, and they talked about their stress levels. No, of course, they're not telling us that. But here's where I kind of laid my case on, and here's where the Spirit spoke to me about the, the thrust of my message. Here was Joseph, who had a three-day journey curveball on top of everything. And what does nine 
months pregnant Mary do? She wants to go with Joseph because she loves him. I just love that. Do you know that that Genesis 1.28, when God tells Adam that he's forming Eve, he says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This word helper is the most dignified, esteeming, and significant word that God could use to describe the relationship that the woman can have. It's the Hebrew word azer. And if you look up azer, it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used all over the place in the Psalms. But in the Psalms, it's not usually referring to woman helpers. But we hear, I look up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. We go to the New Testament. Who else is our helper? John 14:6 says, And I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And here is what I hear in my studies about this passage. Mary, being Joseph's wife, was his helper. And his helper was a source of encouragement and a source of love that made Joseph's beginning journey with his family more bearable. The Lord was helping Joseph through Mary. And if you want to know how do you get through life's trials and curveballs, Jesus says to his disciples, to disciples like Joseph before the twelve and to disciples like us after the twelve, By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Joseph is bearing fruits of obedience. He's taking Mary, raising God. But then listen to this from Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I wonder if you hear that. Do you ever look at life and say, how? <laughs> right? When will it end? How do I make it through the curveballs? Joseph is taking Mary, raising God, going on long, painful trips. How is he making it through? <laughs> Whenever I'm concerned about my little problem that pales in comparison to raising God, But it's still my problem. Love. Abide in Jesus. Accept love from the Helper to remain obedient. And then Jesus gives us the answer to not only how, but also why. I wonder if you heard it. See, not only how do I get through this through the Helper's love, but also why should I get through this? What's the point? And it's so amazing. And I don't want you to miss it. And I want you to not only hear it, but to receive it. Back in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, at the end of Joseph and Mary's divorce tension and at the end of this arduous three-day journey, 
that that great helper, that lover of Joseph who loved her husband and trekked on and after the bad news of no room, but then to have the Son of God comes joy in its fullest. You ever been in a hospital room and hold a newborn baby? Maybe not a hospital room. I have twice. I know what full joy is. And that's the promise of Christmas because it's the promise of Jesus and the Holy Spirit abide in his love, make it through life, and experience the full joy he brings with everything that we go through in life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, some of us, if we're honest, sometimes we wake up every morning with storm clouds above even on sunny days like this. We're too afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions that I brought out today. Why? Why another day? Because of what it might mean. But Father, in the Scriptures, You promise us a helper. You promise us complete and total love from You. Father, to know that each and every one of us, whether we're married or not, whether we have family close by or not, to know this, that we are loved by you with the very exact same love that the Father has for the Son. That sort of love coming from God for us. That's how we get through each and every day. And Father, to know that with you, life does not become a stressor, but it becomes joy each and every moment. That even in our trials and tribulations, the Scripture tells us over and over that we can have joy. The Scripture tells us that whenever you faced the cross in Hebrews, that that was joy set before you. Father, the greatest example of suffering has become joy for you, and it can become joy for us. Father, I pray today that myself, And everyone here would not just hear these words, but that we would receive it experientially. Father, that you would reveal to us that you are walking with us, that you do love us, and that whatever trial we're facing, if we just abide in you, not only does joy await us, but joy in its full. So, Father, would you give that promise to us today? We love you, Lord, and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Kevin Davis here at Woodland Friends Church. Hey, just want to chime in and do something I never wish I had to do. Uh, the ministry we use, so you can hear our sermons, is starting to charge money, but they're giving us a good deal since we've been with them. Only five bucks a month. Um, I don't know if you know this, Woodland Friends Church is a small church. We see about 30 to 50 people. We live out in the remote wilderness of Idaho. And we have pressing matters like missions and other things that we can be doing to help the family of God. But uh, we know this helps the family of God. And if you want to chip in and pay for one month, five bucks, that's a sweet deal. Um, That would be appreciated. Just write uh, with a memo in the check, uh, online sermons, and the address is is 1993 Woodland Road, K-A-M-I-A-H, that's Kamii, K-A-M. IAH Idaho 83536. We would appreciate it. We thank you very much for listening.